welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to Series 3, Episode 8. And we're going to talk today about the healing of the paralysed man. And we're going to read in a minute from Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. We're in the middle of Jesus's uh, very exciting ministry around Galilee. Uh, we found out from earlier episodes that although based in Capernaum, a fishing village by the Sea of Galilee, he doesn't spend a huge amount of time there. He's traveling around to many towns and villages all over the northern district of Galilee, the northern part of Israel. We've noted some remarkable miracles. Uh, we've noted that he went to Nazareth, his hometown, spoke in the synagogue and explained his ministry, gave what we call the Nazareth Manifesto. That's in episode three of this series. And we've seen his influence growing, his reputation growing. We've seen people traveling in from ever greater distances to get a glimpse of Jesus, to hear him teach, and particularly to receive his healing touch because he had a reputation to heal uh, sicknesses of many descriptions and to cast out demons from people. So something remarkable is happening and it involves huge numbers of people traveling to hear Jesus as he travels around. We've also found out um, along the uh, journey, so to speak, from an earlier part of Luke chapter 5, that uh, Jesus is, is gradually building up a more coherent group of dis committed disciples who are on the journey with him. And in that particular incident, in Luke 5, verses 1 to 11, in the parallel passages, he called Peter, Andrew, James and John to leave their fishing business, family trade, and to travel with him around Galilee. So these are some of the things that are happening in the background, but there's something happening in the immediate background that um, is very important to help us understand what's happening in this particular story. The previous episode, episode seven, uh, dealt with the healing of a man with leprosy. The first account of a leper in the New Testament and I described in the previous episode how this man came from social exclusion because he and all other lepers had to live outside the community on their own in order to prevent them infecting anyone else by touching and contaminating them and getting this skin infection with all the secondary health implications. We discussed all that in the last episode. This man we saw last time in the last episode came into the town where Jesus was which he shouldn't have done really, and was against the social convention and the rules and threw himself at Jesus' feet and begged him to have mercy on him and heal him. And of course, he was healed instantaneously. Now, at the end of that story, something interesting happens, which connects directly to what we're going to talk about now. At the end of that story, which is recorded also in Luke 5, it's verses 12 to 16, at the end of that story, Jesus asks the healed leper to go to the priests in the temple at Jerusalem and present himself to them because they were the ones who had the right under the law of Moses 
based on Leviticus chapters 13 and 14 to decide who has leprosy and who doesn't, who's been healed, who hasn't, who's allowed to be part of the community and who needs to be separated so we don't get any uh, infection and transference of the illness, uh, the skin disease onto others. So this man was asked to go to Jerusalem. He would have been inspected by the priests and he had to uh, make a sacrifice to God to thank him as part of that process. Now, no doubt he did this, um, although it's not recorded in the text. And of course, the priests would then make a note and record that someone had been healed of leprosy. They would have asked, who was it who healed him? And he would have said, Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet from Galilee. And they already knew about Jesus because he'd been up in Jerusalem once before, as recorded in John chapter 2. So Jesus was on the radar, was in the minds of the authorities in Jerusalem. And the uh, religious system of, of Israel was uh, coordinated and led by a group of 70 men, a ruling council known as the Sanhedrin. So they would probably have had a report about Jesus from this incident that I just mentioned in the last episode. Quite apart from the fact they had seen him in Jerusalem and he cleansed the temple, which was a very dramatic event. Quite apart from the fact that they knew all about John the Baptist and how John the Baptist had endorsed Jesus as the coming Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So they had all this information gathering. And as we enter into this particular story, you'll notice that there is a reference to religious leaders observing Jesus. So the system in Israel then was that the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, had to investigate any person who was assuming the role of Messiah, Son of God, Saviour. And it's almost certain that the information they already had from these different sources and, and triggered by this leprosy miracle would have encouraged them to make an investigation, to send people, first of all, to observe, later on to question, and uh, finally, to make a decision about whether Jesus was a true Messiah or not. This was part of their religious system. It's not stated in the Gospels, but it's in the background and it explains things that happen. So keep that in mind as we read the story. So this is Luke 5, 17 to 26. One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village in Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralysed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we've seen remarkable things today. And indeed, they had seen very remarkable things. So do you notice um, the dynamics of this story? First of all, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had come from a variety of different places. This looks like a coordinated effort, and we haven't seen it before in the narrative. And the reason they've come is the reason that I've given you, that it's, there's an investigation being triggered in Jerusalem by the leper coming and presenting himself to the priests and all the other evidence that I mentioned earlier on. So they're present, they're watching, and they are assessing who Jesus is and what they think about him. So we just need to keep them in mind because the way Jesus handles this situation is partly based on sending a clear message to these investigators. We'll discuss that in a moment. But the other extraordinary thing about this story is that uh, we have this man coming and not being able to get access to Jesus, this paralyzed man with uh, men carrying him. They brought him some distance um, to this particular place, which is Capernaum, incidentally, uh, that's stated uh, in Mark's account in Mark chapter two. Uh, so they've come to Capernaum with this paralyzed man and they're frustrated because they want to bring him to Jesus in order for him to pray for him or to heal him. They know that other paralyzed uh, people have been healed. And it said that in the text in earlier verses. So they have a lot of expectancy, but they can't get to Jesus. They simply can't get through because there's a crowd and he's in a house which obviously restricts the access. There's only so many people that can get in a house. And many people gathered outside waiting for Jesus to move on, but he was spending some time in the house. And so we see this extraordinary incident take place in which the men who brought the paralysed man on a stretcher decide that they're going to really press through and try and find a way of drawing Jesus' attention to this paralysed man. So they go on the roof of the house, bearing in mind that roofs were flat in those days in the Middle East, as indeed is still the case in parts of the Middle East, and uh, people would use the rooftop as an extra room, a place to, to, to sit and to, to rest and so on. And they went on the flat roof and they began to take it to pieces. Now, we don't know what the owner of the house was thinking. He is not mentioned here. What would you feel if you were the family? the father or the mother or the children um, in that house. I'd be very agitated if I was the father and I found that my house was being taken to pieces bit by bit in the roof in order for this uh, stretcher to get through and you'd have to make a pretty big hole in the roof 
in order to get a stretcher through down into the main part of the house. However, this is what happened and nobody actually stopped them, which is interesting. Maybe the presence of Jesus meant people were less focused on these things and just they're just aware that something remarkable was happening in the house at the time. But anyway, whatever the dynamics were behind the scenes, what we can see from the story is what actually happens, which is the man being lowered down in front of Jesus. And this presents an incredibly dramatic moment in the life of Jesus. You've got the, the men up there waiting expectantly for a miracle. You've got the paralyzed man, vulnerable in the public eye, uh, lying there, unable to help himself. You've got Jesus there with a crowd around him, no doubt the family, and the Pharisees and teachers of the law, who were critically, negatively assessing Jesus at the time. And Jesus' response is interesting. For the first time in his ministry, he makes a point of identifying forgiveness as the primary issue. Friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, he knew what was in the man's heart. He must have seen faith in the man's heart. He, he looked in his eyes and, and maybe he'd spoken to him, but he could see there was faith there. And he could see that he had a need for his sins to be forgiven as well. But why did he make this point before he'd even healed him? Almost certainly to make a statement to the Pharisees and teachers of the law who are coming to investigate Jesus. It was a statement about the fact that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. He wasn't just a healer. He wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a rabble rouser. He wasn't a political dissident. He wasn't a terrorist or revolutionary or some political campaigner. All these ideas would have been circulated at the time. No, he had the power to forgive sins. Now, everybody in Judaism at the time knew that no man had the power to forgive sins. It was purely the prerogative or the right of God himself, Yahweh, the God of Israel, was the one who could forgive you, whose forgiveness you needed. So to say, friend, your sins are forgiven, is to make a staggering claim about Jesus. He is making the claim that he is equal with God, that he is literally the son of God. The Pharisees were shocked but then Jesus goes on in a wonderful way to link together the healing and his statement about forgiveness. Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Both require a miracle. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them. So Jesus' healing here is a demonstration of his power to forgive. He's got the power to heal. He's got the power to forgive. And the man picks up his stretcher, goes home, praises God, and a huge story emerges that enhances Jesus' popularity um, even further. It's a remarkable story, and it leads to tremendous amazement. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. 
Now, as I come to just think about the significance of this and to make some uh, reflections, I want to just um, think very strategically about Jesus' claim to forgive sins. This is really important, something that we need to think about carefully. Now, you'll notice in the phrase uh, where he describes um, his authority, he says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He uses a title there which gives a clue to what he's talking about. And the title is the Son of Man. Now, we've seen that title once or twice, just a few times in John's Gospel. We've never seen that title used yet in Jesus's public ministry in Galilee, as described by Matthew, Mark and Luke. So Jesus introduces a term here, he probably used it earlier, but he strategically introduces this term here to identify who he is. But this term, son of man, what does that mean? Well, it's a religious phrase from the New Testament that maybe you're familiar with, maybe you've heard of before, maybe you think it's just a casual way of talking about Jesus. Well, it's much more than that, because the term, the son of man, is taken by Jesus directly from a major prophecy in the Old Testament. And I'm going to pause for a moment and just talk about this prophecy and the significance of it. Because Jesus had a number of titles, Messiah, Son of God, and other titles, Son of David, that are all significant. But the title Son of Man is one of the most important titles uh, of Jesus. And it seems to be his favoured title because as you follow the Gospels through, you'll find that he uses it frequently. Now it's taken from the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. I'm just going to read a very small extract for you. We haven't got time to go into all the details. But Daniel has a dream about various uh, imperial powers, political imperial powers ruling the world. They are four beasts in his dream, and we're not going to try and interpret that in detail. But the dream culminates in a vision of God uh, on his throne, what we would describe as God the Father, and described here as the Ancient of Days, uh, Daniel 7 verse 9, God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the authority of God over all these human rulers is being demonstrated here. And um, I'm just going to read a passage because in this passage is introduced a character called the Son of Man. And this is where Jesus takes his identity from and uses the term in the New Testament. Anyway, let's just read Daniel 7 verse 9. As I looked Thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. This is a clear... Um, prophetic picture of God, the Ancient of Days, God the Father, sitting with authority to judge and rule in heaven. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. The horn is a character in the dream, a representation of human power and evil. 
I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority and were allowed to live for a period of time. Then comes the crucial uh, part, verses 13 and 14. This is the bit I want to focus on. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And in this vision, Daniel clearly sees a human figure, the son of man, who is also divine, coming into the presence of the ancient of days. So another deity given equal authority and power uh, by the ancient of days, by God the Father, who gave him authority. He was given authority, glory and sovereign powers and all peoples and nations of every language worshipped him. So he's worthy of worship. That means he must be God. But he's also a son of man. He's human. And so this is an end time prophecy about how things turn out at the end of the world. Uh, we're not going into the details, but it's interesting that this prophecy indicates that uh, God himself has a son, the son of man, who's both human and divine, who will be worshipped by all the nations of the world and who's given great power and authority and glory. He's given the very authority of God. Now, this term son of man appears here in the middle of the story. As soon as the Pharisees and teachers of the law heard that phrase, they would know what it meant. They would know the reference back to Daniel chapter 7. They would know that Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, the God-man deliverer of this world, who's both divine and human. So in my concluding reflections on this remarkable story, I want to just say a few things. First of all, this is a very clear moment of Jesus's self-revelation. He reveals himself decisively as much more than a healer, although he conducts a remarkable healing miracle. He shows himself to be the son of man, the divine son of God, human and divine together. Uh, the one prophesied in Daniel 7, who as an aspect of his deity or divinity or his God nature, has the power to forgive sins. Therefore, he must be God. So we have a tremendous self-revelation of Jesus. And we also see that one of the central uh, parts of his ministry is the forgiveness of sins. This will become an increasing theme um, as we go through the Gospels. He forgives the sins of people and we see that the mechanism, as it were, the means by which that forgiveness becomes real for us is his death and his resurrection, his death on the cross, which was a substitutionary atonement in our place. And that forgiveness he's offering here is prefiguring the forgiveness 
that is offered through the gospel to all people who believe in Jesus Christ in all generations, including today. And that's an important message, possibly for some of you listening who haven't yet experienced that cleansing and that forgiveness of sins. Well, that paralyzed man experienced it. He, he wasn't just healed in his body. His soul was healed that day because he came to believe in Jesus, the Messiah, fully. And all the wrong things he'd done in his life were forgiven and taken away from him. This is a wonderful, wonderful reality, which keeps emerging in the gospel narratives as a central part of Jesus's ministry. Another thing that's worth saying is that humanity's greatest need is forgiveness of sins. It's an even greater need than healing of our bodies and of our minds and of our emotions. We need spiritual healing, which is the forgiveness of our sins. And the final thing that I just want to reflect on is the sheer faith and determination of the people, the men, who brought the paralysed man. Now, the paralysed man had to have a lot of courage himself. But the people who carried him there had a huge responsibility. They were literally carrying him. I don't know how many kilometres they had to go. I don't know whether they lived locally or in Capernaum or whether they travelled in. The implication is probably they travelled some distance. But anyway... They had to push through. They had to be determined. They had to uh, go through the uh, uncomfortable and difficult situation of uh, making a nuisance of themselves. They possibly had to incur the cost of rebuilding the roof. Who knows who paid the cost of rebuilding the roof, but they probably said to the owner, please let us do this. We'll, we'll pay you back. We'll come back in a few days time and mend your roof for you. They paid a heavy price. They were determined. They were pushing through on behalf of their friends. That sheer determination appears again and again and again in the Gospels. It's one of the most common themes when you think about the people who come to Jesus. So often they're filled with absolute determination to get through to Jesus and to receive his help. And these people are very good example, as is the leper in the last story that we read in the previous episode, who showed tremendous determination. And Jesus seems to be keen to reward determination to seek him and to find his will and to find his blessings and to find his purpose. So I want to encourage you to uh, take from this story something of that faith that those men showed when they came to Jesus. And for some of you listening to this, you will need real faith to either come to believe in Jesus and confess him as Lord in your cultural context and your social background and your family background, or possibly uh, to bring the needs of other people to Jesus in prayer, which is essentially similar to what these men were doing. They were determined on behalf of somebody else. And so if we're determined on behalf of someone else, we have to often work really, really hard to bring them to a place where they can receive Christ or his blessings. We do that through prayer and through witness to them. This is a very thrilling passage, lots of things to think about in the passage, lots of applications we can make um, for our lives and I trust that it has been a blessing to you. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.